0: Good morning everyone, uh, Venerable Children is still on her teaching tour in Asia, so this morning we'll be continuing to review chapter 6 of Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, starting with verse 12, and we'll see how far we get. And for the motivation for the review today, I'd like to read a little bit from the preface of Venerable Children's book, Working with Anger. She writes, Anger plagues us all on a personal, national, and international level. When it manifests in the mind of even one person, let alone a group or nation, the entire world can be affected. Witness the two world wars of the last century. On a personal level, anger can destroy our relationships with the people we value the most, and keep our mind bound in spirals of misery. Within groups, anger splits people into factions and sets people striving for a common, beneficial aim at cross-purposes to each other. In the international arena, anger fuels the conflicts in the Middle East, now in Ukraine, and elsewhere. As powerful as anger is, it lacks any material substance whatsoever. Nevertheless, it can drastically affect our lives and the lives of others. When we look into our own minds and hearts and understand this disturbing emotion better, we will recognize its unrealistic projections, and thus will not buy into its story so readily. We will gradually be able to distance ourselves from this painful emotion, without suppressing, repressing, or expressing it. We will replace it with more wholesome and beneficial states of mind. And in this way, patience, tolerance, love, and compassion will grow within us. Learning the techniques for doing this is the purpose of this book, and also for this review this morning. So as we can see, learning to overcome our anger can have wide-ranging effects beyond just our own happiness and well-being. And it can significantly improve the lives of the people we live with, our local community, country, and even the whole world. So as we review some of the antidotes to anger this morning, may we do so with the intention to benefit others, and with the aim of full awakening, so that we can be of highest benefit to all beings. Before we start, I'd like to just invite everyone's comments or sharing participation throughout the review, so if you'd like to say anything, just raise your hand, and there's also a few discussion questions that hopefully some of you will be uh, willing to respond to. And we'll start with verse 12. So that verse is, and this is Stephen Batchelor's translation, The causes of happiness sometimes occur, but the causes for suffering are frequent. Without suffering, there is no renunciation. Therefore, mind, you should stand firm." This is actually one of my favorite verses in the Bodhicaryavatara, because I feel like it encapsulates the Four Noble Truths all in this, these four lines. The first two lines acknowledge the pervasiveness of suffering and recognize that it has causes. And then the last two lines affirm that it's possible to end these causes, and that comes about through mental discipline and cultivation. I also like this verse because I find it to be a sympathetic affirmation that Dharma practice is actually quite difficult. The Buddha assured us that suffering can be overcome, but not through our usual ways of running away or ignoring it but only by turning and facing it squarely and then probing deeper and deeper into its causes so that we can find out how to uproot it. And needless to say, this is not always a comfortable process. This first reminds me of the beautiful Buddhist symbol of the lotus, which conveys that the purity of nirvana comes about right in the middle of the muck of samsara. And all sentient beings start out with self-grasping ignorance and the afflictions in their minds, even Buddhas. But despite this, and perhaps because of this, it's still possible to purify the mind completely of all negativities and to develop all good qualities. If we can learn to use our suffering to fuel our renunciation and compassion, samsara can actually become an ally in attaining awakening. And TikTok Han wrote a book that I think encapsulates this idea quite well called No Mud, No Lotus. So, verse 12 implicitly points to the role that our minds play in creating our happiness or suffering by referring to the causes, which are principally the karmic seeds within our mindstream. The causes of suffering are frequent because our minds have an enormous stockpile. Of karmic seeds from non-virtuous actions that we've done in the past that we've committed since beginning this time and furthermore each day we create countless more causes for suffering by acting under the influence of our afflictions and wrong views because the mind is a source of our problem it's also the solution which is an interesting predicament to be in and therefore it makes sense to make friends with our minds and get on its good side. And this is not easy and requires a lot of fortitude and self-compassion. So to me, this is the meaning of asking the mind to stand firm or to be steadfast, as another translation um, translates it. So I watched uh, Venerable Chödrön's teachings on this verse, and she said that, Uh, It's often our unrealistic expectations of things that can cause our suffering. And due to our ignorance, we're always fighting against the reality that conditioned existence is unsatisfactory. We stubbornly hold on to the belief that happiness and pleasure should be frequent, while the causes for suffering should be few and far between. This becomes one of our rules of the universe. So when something unpleasant happens... In addition to feeling upset, we also feel shocked, or cheated. And again, this really doesn't help the situation. One of the commentaries um, that Venable Lamso recommended is by Gaelic Rinpoche. And he um, he commented on all the chapters of Bodhicharya Bhattara, but um, especially chapter 6, I looked at And in his commentary, he points out that the causes of suffering are also many because even the things that make us happy eventually cause us to suffer once they change or once we get too much of them. And this is referring to the second kind of dukkha, the dukkha of change. And Venerable Chojin has often said, once we get whatever we want, then we have that kind of hell. We have computer hell, we have car hell, we have tractor hell, etc., So in teaching on this verse, venerable children gave some very helpful advice on how to hold the truth of suffering in a balanced way that avoids the extremes of anxiety or depression. And the correct conclusion from the Lamra meditations on the disadvantages of cyclic existence and the different kinds of suffering is not depression or fear, but a feeling of sobriety. And from this place of sober acceptance of the situation that we're in, we can generate a strong wish to be free of it and begin investigating its causes, applying antidotes, and hopefully enjoying some temporary cessations. So I know when I was a teenager and young adult, I had a really pessimistic view of the world. I thought everything sucked, and sometimes I find this coming up. Uh, Not sometimes, frequently, (laughs) I find this coming up. And so it was actually one of the reasons I was immediately drawn to Buddhism when I met it at 20. Um, The First Noble Truth seemed to like totally validate my perception of things. So I found it kind of funny when Venerable Chojin said that college textbooks often give the First Noble Truth a bad translation by saying it's life is suffering. Um, which is what I remember reading, but I was totally behind it. (laughs) Um, But she pointed out, Buddhism is actually not pessimistic, and um, that's because the Buddha went on to describe, we can actually overcome this. There is an end to suffering, thank goodness. And I've had the thought that um, probably all human beings have this notion somewhere within them that things aren't quite right. Being born without choice having to get sick, having to die. Um, Yeah, that's just not really, doesn't make any sense in a way, like why? But not knowing many alternatives, they just try to distract themselves and all kinds of pointless or harmful activities. And I know that's certainly what I did um, before I met the Dharma, and even after I met the Dharma, too. So another meaning behind Asking the mind to stand firm is the development of confidence in our ability to improve our situation. A venerable children talked about the tremendous inner strength and inner confidence that bodhisattvas must build inside themselves to fulfill their own and others' purposes. She said, As soon as we let self doubt in, we've shot ourselves in the foot, and the afflictions have invaded like a Trojan horse. So the root affliction of doubt is something to be especially guarded against as we try to strengthen our renunciation and increase our confidence in the path. And Gelag Rinpoche mentioned how this verse highlights that we need to take responsibility for our own suffering, because no one, not even the Buddha, can realize emptiness for us. We must do it ourselves. And he says, whether it is physical, mental or emotional, the bottom line is pain. It is so important for us to understand and take advantage of this. So some of the methods that Minimal Children mentioned for developing self-confidence is reflecting on the difficulties that we've gone through in our life and give ourselves credit for getting through them. She said, it's really important to see what you've accomplished. Not be arrogant about it, but see that you have the capacity to deal with difficulties. If you look back through your life, everyone has dealt with difficulties and come out stronger. It's important to remember that because you know you've done it before and can do it again. And this helps us to accept our suffering. in my own practice, I've definitely noticed a connection between ethical behavior, benefiting others, and developing self-confidence. And I can see that my ability to trust myself and to view myself as a good person has grown through taking precepts and doing purification practices. Another great practice I found for increasing self-confidence is taking stock at the end of each day of what I'm proud of doing or the good qualities that I was able to bring up in a difficult situation. And then sincerely rejoicing in this. So I want to ask if anyone uh, would like to share any tips they have for increasing their self-confidence or maybe how their confidence, self-confidence has grown since meeting the Dharma.
1: I think it's probably been one of the most difficult learnings for me. But the fact that a lot of my self-confidence, I never had any because I continually thought that the world was the one that was running my life all of my all of my dukkha was something outside myself imposing on myself. So I didn't have to take any responsibility for how I was feeling, how I was thinking. So that whole victim kind of thinking that can come. So as the years have gone on, the more I take on the responsibility for my own mind and I have days that bear fruit for that, that's where I start having a little bit more stability in this is something you can determine you know and how do you do that and little by little so i think the taking on the responsibility has built a lot of my you know has helped me build my Mm self-confidence
0: yeah 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 um dharma can be so empowering when you see that you can make a difference um yeah you you do have that power and there's nobody else to blame, like you said. So it's uh, tremendously freeing in a way. And we'll tarpa Miltar we'll Seppel?
2: I think for me, the most important thing in, in learning about self-confidence was do what I learned from this text in discerning the difference between self-importance and self-confidence. Maybe there's something that feels similar when you don't examine it very much, but there. They're really quite different, and I think that um, they could be conflated quite easily. So to to tell those two apart and to know which one you want to rely on um, feels more stable. There's a feeling of stability to it that I think is helpful.
3: I would just build on what uh, Benable Simke said in in terms of being able to uh, notice the flavor of my mind more often, notice when it's grumpy or when it's um, starting to tank and get depressed or um, uh, or start to whine or have go into self-pity and catch that and then start to examine what kind of mind is this. So that's been so empowering. And then to know if this is self-centeredness, I'm not following you anymore, um, to be that stern with, you know, to turn around and point the finger at what is really the cause of this suffering here. It's not what I think it is. Mm. And um yeah. And also, um I think before I met the Dharma, I certainly had values or principles. I was exposed to values and principles in being how I was raised, but they weren't very conscious. Um, and so Buddhism has helped me to identify the, the conscious values that I actually want to live by, whether those are positive states of mind or or different values, and to keep those in mind so that, you know, on those uh, moments where maybe I'm starting to be tempted to do something or or think a certain way, if I can remember those values, this is not how I want to live, um, then that can also be a, like a correction help me get back on track.
0: Yeah, so, oh, peace.
3: Also building on that, I I, I know before I met the Dharma and learned to have a different source of reference. I completely measured my value depending on other people's opinions of me or approval of me or what I did or whatever. So, of course, it was constantly going up and down depending on what kind of approval ratings I was getting. I couldn't imagine being a politician and having to live with those popular approval ratings. Like, God, how do these people cope with it? Um, But to learn that that has absolutely no value or no relationship whatsoever to the value of the person, myself, was astonishing, and it has taken a long time to, um, to change that understanding because it's so deeply conditioned, but it's been very powerful in developing self-confidence that's based on something internal and not on other people's views.
0: Yeah, um, from what you've been saying, it sounds like the Dharma really helps us to develop that ability to, to assess ourselves and not rely on what, what other people think of us and to be able to catch what's going on in our mind and then to choose, is this something I want to follow and say, well, yeah, that's not me. That's the self-centered thought and I don't have to follow it. So yeah, distancing from the emotions or the, the afflictions can be really, um, self-affirming when you see that it's not the same thing. And I can shut the door on that if I want to. With, uh, Practice. Anyone else?
4: Me. Well, for me, what has given me the more um, strange or self-confidence, it's that the Dharma works. I mean, um, I think that all of us, what bring us, brings us to the Dharma, apart from previous connection or not, is that we see it works, and it's about training yourself. The more you train yourself, the more security you gain, even more in the Dharma. I, I don't know, you just have to follow and practice it. Mm-hmm.
0: So for me, this is what gives me yeah, more um, security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, integrating the Dharma into your own mind. Yeah, and that
4: you have it. I mean, it's, it's about practicing, making effort, but the path is there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, we just have to practice, practice well.
5: I've been working on this for quite a while and still working on it. And something that helps is uh, Shantideva, chapter 7, verse 54. Therefore, with a steady mind, I shall overcome all falls. For if I am defeated by a fall, my wish to vanquish the three realms will become a joke. Mm -hmm. So I use that as a motivation to keep trying. Mm
0: -hmm. Nice. And um, just one last thing about this verse. Uh, Gelug Rinpoche cited... A verse from Lama Chopa as an excellent example of what a very firm mind looks like. And the verse is Thus, venerable, compassionate gurus, inspire me so all negativities, obscurations, and sufferings of mother sentient beings ripen upon me right now, and I give my happiness to others, securing all wonders and bliss. So, through the practice of Tonglen, we can transform suffering into the causes for our own and other's happiness. So going on to verse 13, If some ascetics and the people of Karnapa endure the pains of cuts and burns for no reason, then why, for the sake of liberation, then for the sake of liberation, why have I no courage? So this verse begins a, a group of verses on developing patience by reframing our attitude towards discomfort. And this verse refers to the suffering that human beings willingly undergo in order to obtain worldly pleasure or fame or as a misguided means of seeking spiritual liberation. And in one of the commentaries I found that the people of Karnapa Uh, engaged in fasting and self-mortification rituals a few days out of the year to celebrate the austerities that Indra went through in his attempt to reach enlightenment. And there were and still are many ascetics in India today who think that torturing the body is the way to get rid of attachment to it. And self-mortification is found in other religious traditions too, uh, Venerable children mentioned the whips and the hair shirts in the medieval Catholic church. And then there are Hindus in Malaysia and Singapore today who uh, apparently put hooks in their back and pull heavy carts down the street. And I was thinking of more, uh, I guess, common examples of self-inflicted pain that people do to get praise and frame or um, a partner, attract a partner like tattoos and body piercings, bodybuilding and extreme athletics, unusual eating habits, um, possibly leading to eating, distor- eating disorders and plastic surgery. And I remember as when I was a teenager, I heard about these women in China who would um, break their legs so that um, when they were healing, they would pull the bones apart and then they would gain a few extra inches uh, when the bones refused, and I'm not sure if that story is true, but given um, what women in China did to their feet, um, basically crippled themselves, uh, maybe that uh, kind of thing is still going on. Um, they would bind their feet in order because small feet was um, a sign of beauty. Um, I guess it was the 1800s or something like that. And they, I had to outlaw that pr- practice because it was. It's still very popular. Um, And a less extreme example would probably be working long hours in order to uh, get a raise or get a promotion. And this results in sleep deprivation and anxiety and not being able to spend time with your family or do the things that you enjoy. So I want to ask if anyone is willing to share um, something painful that they did in order to achieve worldly happiness. And what immediately came to mind was Not Wong's BBC <laughs> about the hair um, removal and the hair implantation techniques that you looked into. Um, yeah, I do remember shaving, and it's it's yeah, you cut yourself, and it's itchy, and it's you have to do it again and again. So, I mean, shaving's not that bad, but you know, I'm sure some of us have done worse things. So, I, Hoping you might be willing to share. Cutting? Well, yeah, not like um, punishing yourself, but doing it in order to gain like praise or status or some kind of worldly pleasure. I think often in certain. Uh... Uh,
6: jobs and industries, it's kind of the culture that if you work long and hard hours, that that's considered something really, uh, you know, beneficial and um, that's certainly the case in healthcare. you know, you work until you drop and then you still work some more, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I know that in um, the government policy world in washington dc it was people working really long hours and always just complaining about it but secretly bragging about it you know who could stay up stay at the office the latest that was a status symbol (laughs) and check their blackberries all weekend long and also cake
1: My younger years, there was certainly, to get status and to fit in, there was some serious drug taking. And the bigger the group and the more out there, you know, you just do a whole bunch of something, and then you go out and ski ski powder the first thing in the morning, or you take a whole bunch of drugs and go to the Halloween party at the bar. And it's just this entire tribe going down the road with costumes, just highest kites. (laughs) And, you know, you're just doing it because you want to fit in, you want to be popular. This is the crowd that's like the the in crowd. So I found myself during my twenties doing things like that. And then of course, you know, driving home and not remembering how I got into my bed, you know, or going out into hot springs and being out there with people that I didn't know, you know, and being really vulnerable just because that was the cool thing to do. So just wanting to fit in and to, to be included, you know, that whole kind of tribal thing. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of that when I was...
0: thanks for mentioning drugs and alcohol because venerable children says so many people come to her saying i don't really like to drink i just do it because other people do it um and yeah i mean drinking has some really not so pleasant side effects um i definitely remember lots of throwing up lots of hangovers and yeah what was it for it was to just fit in with people in college and it's supposed to be a fun thing to do. Um, and that reminded me of hazing at uh, fraternities and sororities. That's, people are dying because of that. So I think that could definitely be worthy of mentioning in Shanti Deva's text the ridiculous things people do in order to just, I don't know, get some pats on the back or, yeah, or less ridiculous, wanting to belong, wanting to feel like you're connected to other people. That's probably what's at the root. So given that we're willing to endure all kinds of hardship in order to get just short-term happiness, Deva asks us, why then are you such a coward when it comes to working for liberation? And we recently learned in Venerable Sange Kadra's class on mindfulness of feelings that unpleasant feelings can be divided into unpleasant worldly feelings and unpleasant spiritual feelings. So it seems to me that in this verse, Shantideva is encouraging us to embrace the unpleasant spiritual feelings that may arise while we're purifying our minds and creating merit. For example, this past week, Geshe Topkay mentioned that unhappiness arises in our mind when we think about death, but this has the positive effect of making us more conscientious about how we live our life. So it's helpful to recognize that unpleasant feelings are not always something to be avoided and that they can actually signal that we're doing something beneficial. And what comes to mind is the soreness that I felt after an intense exercise session. And I've actually learned to enjoy that soreness because it means that I'm strengthening my body and making it healthier. Okay, so uh, verse 14. There is nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. So through becoming acquainted with small harms, I should learn to patiently accept greater harms. In our teaching on this uh, verse, Venerable Children said that chapter 6 is about, all about developing inner strength, the strength to practice the Dharma, not to be shaken by criticism or insults and the strength to endure illness and physical ailments and the way that we develop in our strength is by starting with small challenges and then building up to bigger ones because there's nothing that, that can't become easier through repetition and practice. So um, would anyone like to share of something that they can do quite well now that they initially found very difficult?
4: I've seen with some of my uh, tasks here, especially around, like, the bookkeeping, um, you know, talking to people on the phone, I think it's kind of generational, was something that I hated doing. I had a lot of anxiety around it. You know, I didn't really understand the terminology or how to navigate banking stuff. Um and so everything took a really long time, brought up a lot of anxiety. I didn't feel good about it. And now, now it's something that I kind of know, I know how it goes. I know what can be said. I know that no one's going to die if I say the wrong thing. And so I don't have that same anxiety come up and can just easily go through whatever needs to be done.
0: Great. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Yes. So many people have fear of public speaking and... The only way to get over it is to do it. Driving a tractor. Yeah, that's pretty scary (laughs) at first. (laughs) It's a lot of power.
7: As an only child, I was very averse to sharing a room and sharing a bathroom while living at the Abbey. Um, But after, you know, going on years now, um, it's becoming easier and easier. And I'm seeing that it's not such um, a source of suffering. Right now, you also mentioned about driving a tractor. And uh, yes, it may be difficult in the in the beginning, but if you keep on uh, doing it, then it will become easier because Georgia Driving Manual affirms that. By saying practice makes it, Instinctual, eventually. (laughs) So even the driving manual affirms that. (laughs) So yeah, practice makes it perfect. Yeah, but it says it. When you keep on driving, then it will become instinctual. So don't uh, stop at that. Keep on driving, and then eventually it will be at your fingertips.
0: Yeah, so you can respond in a split second, right? When something comes your way, you just know exactly what to do. So yeah, how to get to that point of things being instinctual, Um, often the step in between is developing a habit. So I think this verse really points to the importance of developing good habits. And I found some uh, quotes about habit that I thought might be helpful to share. So Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And then Gandhi said, your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values. And your values become your destiny. Or we could say karma in Buddhism. So I think Dharma practice is in large part about creating a lot of new habits and letting go of old ones. So we fill up water water bowls every day, make offerings, um, go to meditation each morning and say prayers, all in an attempt to develop the habits of generosity, of concentration and compassion. And then we take precepts against lying and stealing, sexual misconduct and other non-virtues, in order to get us drop old, unskillful habits. And I know it's amazing to see just how much the afflictions can arise due to mental habits, um, particularly lying. And I've seen this in my own mind, and I've also heard other people talk about this as well. But in the process of establishing new habits and building our capacity, Venerable Children pointed out we have to be realistic. She humorously said, We shouldn't be boisterous and think I'm going to do 500 nunes in a row or 5,000 prostrations every day because I'm a brave bodhisattva wannabe and I can accomplish all of that. Just like sports heroes and Olympic athletes, we have to start small and then keep upping it. We have to be both brave and practical, master what we're capable of doing now and then up it a little bit. Okay, so verse 15. Who has not seen this to be so with trifling sufferings, such as the bites of snakes and and insects, feelings of hunger and thirst, and with such minor things as rashes? So to really bring this verse alive, I want to read a passage from Lama Zopa's commentary on chapter six, um, from a book called Patience. And he describes the conditions that the Tibetan monastic refugees initially faced when they uh, were trying to reestablish themselves in India. So he says, therefore, it is greatly worthwhile to train the mind in patience in this way. If we live in a place that is full of snakes, mosquitoes, fleas, and bedbugs, it is like living in a palace full of jewels. <laughs> this was so of Booksa Dwar where I lived with Mama Yeshe for many years, a former concentration camp where the British had imprisoned political prisoners such as Mahatma Gandhi and Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. It was where the Indian government housed the Tibetan monks when they first fled from the Chinese invasion of Tibet. It was a kind of mischievous place. Surrounded by huge forested mountains where tigers and elephants lived, it was extremely hot in the summer and in the evenings it swarmed with mosquitoes. The beds were made from stripped bamboos and crawling with bedbugs that lived in the cracks of the bamboo. When the monks cleaned the beds every few weeks by hitting the bed with sticks, the bedbugs would fall to the floor in the thousands. (laughs) Whenever we had to go outside to the toilet, we faced leeches and snakes. If it was raining and we opened an umbrella while squatting on the toilet, There would sometimes be a snake in the umbrella. Snakes nested between the roof and the walls and would sometimes fall through the cracks onto the beds of sleeping monks. In short, the place was full of creatures that bit and gave harm. After we had been there for some time, however, we became used to these creatures, no longer thinking of them as threats. The bites and the itching, even the illnesses we got from them, weren't seen as any great suffering. I'm sure if somebody had gone there from a big city at that time, say New York, they wouldn't have been able to stand an hour. But what Shanti Shantideva said is so true. We can get used to anything. You know, Venable Chojin talks about the fleas that she uh, had to cohabitate with in the early days at Copan. And even at the Abbey, we have our own version with the ticks and the bedbugs. And also in Ananda, there's no air conditioning in the summertime. So very um, hard to endure. But compared to the Dharma benefits that we get from these situations, the physical suffering is so trifling. It's it's so minor. Um, and this verse also brought to mind something I heard a, a nun at Kopan Monastery say, that um, when she would get... Stung by a mosquito, she would uh, mentally offer her body to the mosquito. And instead of it being hurtful, uh, painful, it would turn into bliss. And the way she said it, like she just rolled, <laughs> she rolled her eyes back. It was bliss. I'm like, wow, she has a very strong practice. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of control over our experiences if we can uh, work with our minds.
3: I heard a teaching by Zongzar Kensei Rinpoche once, and he was describing this verse, talking about how we should start practicing with bourgeois suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, like you go to your favorite restaurant and it's closed, or you go to pick up your dry cleaning and it's closed, or, you know, starting with things that we might think is very irritating or annoying or inconvenient, but starting there and working with those small sufferings and then building up over time. And um, so that that... That phrase really stuck in my mind. Is this bourgeois suffering or is this real suffering? Mm-hmm. Or um, another one that my nephew uses is, this: is this first world suffering or third world suffering? Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Um, I have heard the first world. That's a first world problem. And yeah. it, is,
3: it can put things into perspective.
0: Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So 16, I should not be impatient with heat and cold, wind and rain, sickness, bondage and beatings, for if I am, the harm they cause me will increase. Now this verse points that a lot of the suffering associated with physical pain is actually mental suffering added on top of it, um, driven by anger or fear. And the mind is really good at taking some small ailment and turning it into a terminal illness, um, thanks to WebMD. I think that's uh, contributed to the uh, catastrophizing of any small pain. Um, and the mind can take just the smallest offense and turn it into like this huge, epic insult. The Venerable Children said the self centered mind is really good at taking insignificant instances of suffering and turning it into something important. If we just stop to really look at the situation, we could see it's actually not so bad and that it's just our mind making it awful. So in the past few days, I've been um, noticing that how I respond to unpleasant mental feelings that arise in my mind makes a really big difference on how painful they are. Uh, Sometimes I'm able to just note them and then let them pass. But often I get stuck in the storyline behind them. Um, what does it mean? What does it mean about me? What's going to happen in the future? And that just compounds the pain so much more. Um, physical pain, I don't find as much uh, proliferation, but yeah, unpleasant mental feelings, I feel can really get me going down this path that, um, yeah, there's really no end to it. Um So one of the techniques that's um, being taught by people like Jon Kabat-Zinn for dealing with chronic pain is uh, a mindfulness practice where one just simply observes the pain as it arises uh, without letting thoughts and judgments take over their experience. And then the pain can be experienced as something impermanent and and insubstantial. And at least the mental suffering associated with that pain um, will subside. I've heard in um Bhante Gunaratana's book he, he describes how um investigating a pain, you know, in his leg with mindfulness, the pain actually disappeared. It was excruciating, but it's impermanent. So it's really quite remarkable um yeah, how um how much our mind plays a role in our experience of physical pain. So bad weather and insects may be relatively easy to tolerate, but what about injustice with the hands of other people, like bondage and beatings? And as an example of the potential that we all have to choose how we respond to harm, Venerable Chojin had shared this story of the Tibetan monk um, who, whose biggest fear while he was being tortured by Chinese guards was losing his compassion for them. And his bodhicitta practice allowed him to endure the beatings, uh, while others who had much stronger self cherishing or, or self centeredness suffered much more and didn't survive. And likewise, I've heard how um, some Holocaust survivors um, attributed how they worked with their mind, um, how they treated other people as, you know, really helping them make it through, whereas, other people are just completely overwhelmed by the loss of their property and, and fear and loss of their family. Um, so that, that self-centered attitude um, really can compact, compound our suffering so much. Um, and then in addition to just enduring suffering, we can turn it into something positive, um, like purification or increasing our compassion. And Gala Rinpoche mentioned in his commentary that bodhisattvas actually experience pleasure when giving their body or body parts to others or going to the hell realms to benefit sentient beings. So maybe that's a little far off, but um, we can learn to um, take delight in you know, the small strains or sorenesses that we um, might get as we're serving others around the community or Know pushing ourselves to just do a little bit more um, because we know it's um, better in the long run for ourselves or f- and for others. Okay, verse 17 Some, when they see their own blood, become especially brave and steady, but some, when they see the blood of others, faint and fall unconscious. So this verse again points out how much the mind influences our experience of physical and mental pain. And the last two lines about being overwhelmed by other suffering reminded me of the chapter in An Open-Hearted Life on compassion and personal distress. And their um venerable children define compassion as focusing on the other person who is suffering and wishing them to be free from suffering and its causes. While on the other hand, personal distress focuses on our own pain at seeing another suffering. Personal distress clouds our minds and may lead us to feel so much sadness that we become unable to help others. But with compassion, we can see situations clearly and assess our own capabilities to help and what the other person is capable of receiving. And then some suggestions on how to counteract personal distress from that chapter included remembering that our control over a situation is always very limited due to countless causes and conditions at play, um, recalling that all misery is impermanent, and then doing tong, Tonglen meditation. So, verse 18. These reactions come from the mind, being either steady or timid. Therefore, I should disregard harm's caused to me and not be affected by suffering. I find it um, very inspiring to read about the lives of others who have overcome great hardship um, to accomplish something worthwhile. And I find this really helps to put my own situation into perspective and to remind me of the potential that all human beings have to thrive in any situation. And Venerable Chodron mentioned that when she faces difficulties herself, she thinks of her teachers like Lama Yeshe and Zopa Rinpoche, who gave up a comfortable life in order to come and teach in the West. So I want to um, ask if anyone would like to share a story about Someone you know um who overcame great obstacles to succeed, or even a story about you yourself,
6: how you did this what popped into my head was um my father he uh was born into a very poor family and um uh, they actually lived in a tent in uh uh in outside in the plains from Denver, and um, in the winter it got so bad, he would wake up and hold the pole so that the tent wouldn't fall over because of the wind was so bad. There was eight of them in this tent. And um, uh, he quit school at eight uh, so that he could help. Um, But even though he did all that, he... um, was able to, um, uh, well, and then he joined the army and was uh, in World War II and was uh, in part of the infantry that uh, 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 rescued some of the first folks that were in the concentration camps in Germany. So, you know, really horrific experiences. But after that, he... um, Uh, went to a trade school and learned how to be a printer and worked for a newspaper. And so really overcame many, many, many difficulties with no education, really, you know. And so that was always uh, astounding to me and inspiring.
8: I knew a kid in middle school who had, um, had one deformed arm that was really small and had two elbows, but he was very athletic. And he had—I mean, he had been born that way—and he was just used to it. He would play baseball and bat with one hand. He was probably one of the best um, baseball players in the school. He would pitch, and then he would throw, and then he'd put the glove on, catch the ball, <laughs> flip it, and he just—he played basketball. He played football, and um, I never seen him let that bother him at all. It was just.
3: Mm
8: dealt with what he had. To, what he had.
0: Hmm. We'll simply... I don't know
1: whether I have any favorites about our kitties that live at the Abbey, but we had one. His name was Manjushri. And soon after Venerable moved here, we found out he had some lesion on his leg and we took him to the vets and the doc said, well, that's it's a cancer. We can do two things. We can just take the cancer out the chances are it'll come back or we can amputate that back leg and it probably won't ever come back, you know, that'll take care of it. So they took off Manju's leg and he said, it's really, really important that you keep this little guy confined in a room for a week. Well, that didn't, I mean, Manju came came out of the kitty kennel, scooted up the stairs, and that was the end of the conversation. And so for the rest of his life, (laughs) which was a good 10 years, that little guy could fly around here on three legs. I mean, it never was an issue for him just to, to see an animal go through such trauma like that and to not have any type of issue around it. And we just never tried to force him to do anything besides what he thought he would do. But he, that was a major... Um, you know, I think animals have their own way of coping with trauma, and Manjushi
0: certainly had a, a skill around it. But that was interesting to see. Yeah, hmm. seeing ordinary people overcome great challenges, I think can be really inspiring, Um, more so than even famous people um, who might've had an advantage. And I know we have a safe student who is blind and deaf, and somehow he's able to participate in the online forum and write answers and engage with others.
2: I heard this story about my dad, I think after he passed away, maybe, um, when he was a kid, his mom got divorced and they were quite poor and they didn't have enough food. Like he had one shirt to wear to school, you know, he'd wash it every day and iron it and that kind of thing. And when, And then there came a point where he and his brother were going off to school, but they didn't have any food for breakfast. And his mom said, well, just go down to the butcher shop and ask him for a hot dog. And they did that. And the butcher, I think he gave him the hot dog, but he ridiculed them for their poverty. And I remember this, I think I had heard that part of the story, but I'd never heard what happened after that, which is I think that part of his mind, and he was like five, got kind of depressed about this and then he just picked himself up and he never let himself go that way again he just never let himself feel that again it, you know like i'm not sure that he shut things off he just decided right then and there that he was going to do something with his life and and he wasn't going to let this situation bring him down and and that's actually how he lived his life then mm-hmm. after that mm-hmm. you know he just i don't know something something in that five year old mind decided not to crumple with this.
5: An example that came to mind is a number of years ago when I was still teaching school in Alberta, um, the Canadian government accepted a number of refugee people from... They were living in camps in Jordan, but they were Kurds. And the reason they flew from what they considered their homeland of Kurdistan, which, of course, no one recognized, was that Saddam Hussein at the time was trying to kill them. So somehow there was this lottery, these... These families got plane tickets to Canada, they sent them first to Toronto, and then they spread them across the country. And when I was teaching school, a number of these families came to our school. So these are families where they were illiterate, the parents were illiterate, they were basically, you know, animal herders in the mountains. So no one had ever gone to school and all of a sudden they're living in, you know, a suburban community in a Canadian city They know nothing about winter or winter clothes. Um, Everyone's going to school, even the girls. And this was of great concern to the men in the community, Mm -hmm. like their girls are going to go to school, like the boys, like it was okay for the boys to go. But everything was so totally foreign. And so some of the boys who were going to high school, of course, were taking the guns to school because, you know, where they came from, it was just normal that you'd carry a gun just to stay alive. So just the hurdles, the the layers and layers of social things that they had to get used to, and they got used to it. You know, pretty soon their kids are in high school and they're getting jobs at McDonald's, and they're thriving. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know the language at all, that, mm-hmm. that thing as well.
0: Yeah, refugee stories are always so amazing. Um, the disadvantages um, that they come in with, um, probably some trauma, trauma. I remember in the State Department, uh, some of the training that the refugees were given were just how to use a toilet, and what soap, basic hygiene things, because, you know, like you said, they come from agricultural places, herding, and they haven't seen modern appliances. But in no time at all, they're just thriving, and it's remarkable. Okay. Um, so going on to 19, even when the wise are suffering, their minds remain very lucid and undefiled for when war is being waged against the disturbing conceptions, much harm is caused at the time of battle. So this is another verse that really owns up to the difficulties that we encounter when practicing the Dharma and challenging self-centeredness and the afflictions. And this is because the afflictions are so very deeply rooted in our mind. And as Venerable Chodron said, they're not going to roll over after we do one meditation session. But if we have an understanding about what we're up against and know that there's really nothing else worth, worth doing in samsara, the mind can actually remain pretty lucid and undefiled when we encounter suffering. I found reflecting on this verse gave me more appreciation for all of you um, here at the Abbey because I often find myself forgetting just how difficult it is to dedicate your life to fighting self-centeredness and the afflictions and doing that by ordaining and living in a community. It's really not easy, not something I think most of us are used to. So, yeah, I'd like to have a little bit more... um, Compassion and tolerance um, next time something happens. Okay, um, verse 20. The victorious warriors are those who, having disregarded all suffering, vanquish the foes of hatred and so forth. Common warriors slay only corpses. So to unpack this verse, I wanted to read a passage from Steps of the Path to Enlightenment by Geshe Sopa, in the section on the perfection of patience. And he says, We usually think our enemies are somewhere out there. However, the real enemy, the one that makes you suffer so much, is you yourself. Under the power of anger, jealousy, pride, and so on, we strive to destroy those whom we consider to be our enemies. But we cannot succeed. There is no need to destroy them anyway. They will all die soon, naturally. Thus, trying to annihilate external enemies is like beating a corpse. That's not very heroic. In contrast, our inner enemies are always with us. They throw us into bad rebirths. If we conquer the internal enemy of hatred, we are a true hero. So, commenting on these uh, war uh, analogies and war themes. Um, and his commentary, Gellar Rinpoche made the interesting observation that Shakyamuni Buddha's mantra contains the word muni three times, and he translates muni as conqueror, as someone who has achieved victory. So the Buddha's first victory was over the wandering mind when he gained perfect samadhi, Um, His second victory was over his negative emotions, and then his third victory was over the imprints of the afflictions. And Buddha himself said in the Dhammapada, Though one may conquer a thousand times a thousand men in battle, yet he indeed is the noblest victor who conquers himself. And he also said, as um, recorded in the Dhammapada, Whatever harm an enemy may do to an enemy, or a hater to a hater, an ill-directed mind inflicts on oneself a greater harm." And I really liked a point that Lama Zopa made in his commentary about how the external enemy is just a creation of our own mind. He said, the enemy is the view of our negative thoughts, an interpretation, a label. And it is not the view of all of our minds. It's not the interpretation of our pure positive mind. In the view of patience, this being being is the kindest person, the most precious one, because they give us the unique opportunity to practice. So what we need to do is change our way of thinking, not eliminate all external enemies. Yeah, um, just thinking about how our own anger is the source of our enemies is just really astounding, um, to think about that. So, um, cause it's really, you know, when anger arises, it's always out there, something out there, but to really, you know, familiarize the mind with, okay, this is happening within your own mind <laughs> look there. That's something that I really would like to, um, a handle on and yeah it's just so difficult okay verse 21 furthermore suffering has good qualities through being disheartened with it arrogance is dispelled compassion arises for those in cyclic existence negativity is shunned and joy is found in virtue So this is the last verse in the section on developing patience by transforming our attitude towards suffering. And here, Shantideva encourages us not to only tolerate suffering, but to embrace its positive qualities. So the first positive quality of suffering is that it reduces arrogance. In her teachings, Venerable Children said, When we're suffering, we're, we're in no mood to be arrogant. Arrogant people do not like to acknowledge that they need help because they know everything already. I know that's true for me. That's me speaking. But when we're suffering, it's difficult to hold ourselves above everybody else because we clearly need help. And then another good quality of suffering is that compassion arises for others in cyclic existence. And when you're sick, you can probably easily, more easily empathize with others who have that same condition or something even worse. Um, When I got that minor cold just a few weeks ago, I thought about people with COVID and yeah, a lot of compassion arose. And I think without the suffering I experienced growing up, I really doubt I would have as much compassion as I do for different groups of people. And Venerable children gave the example of immigrants. Um, she said that if people could have the experience of growing up in, in another country where their life was in danger, they might have more compassion for people who want to immigrate to the United States. And she said, I've always thought if American youth could go and spend some time in other countries, this country would be very different. And I definitely agree. Um, I think being part of uh, a few minority groups has helped me to sympathize with other people who are at some kind of disadvantage. And I can see for other groups who I feel really no affinity towards, their issues don't really matter to me. Um, So I, yeah, I think that using our own suffering um, or our own disadvantages in order to increase compassion um, is a really skillful way to transform the anger and the jealousy that arises, uh, that could arise instead in its place. So can anyone give an example of how uh, their own suffering has helped them to develop compassion for others?
8: Um, This actually also relates to 19, for when war is being waged against the disturbing conceptions. Um, When I'm overcome by an affliction, I can really see that as suffering, and then that can make me more likely to have compassion for someone else when I see them overcome by afflictions. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's great.
4: Personally, suffering has helped me so much all all my life, because um, especially the few the first years as well as a kid also and as a teenager. Yeah, we can say that the last years of my life it was very blissful in a samsaric way. But the rest of my life was very difficult, and uh, but this has been a great blessing. I really say it with all my heart, because going through so many different, especially mental um, uh, suffering that we have a lot in the West, then uh, it's very easy to connect and understand others. The more experiences you have had, the more um, broad is I mean the your capacity to identify other sufferings and connect to what they have so yeah Mm. but usually we recognize this when we are more adults yeah yeah yeah
3: many years ago i remember getting a sinus infection for the first time and i had so much compassion for all the people who had sinus infections (laughs) once you've experienced that kind of pain that comes with that and then throughout my life, of course, and I'm sure this is true of all of us. Like as soon as we understand the pain and the suffering of our own afflictions, it's like there is a new space in us to have some compassion for others who are suffering, and even to the point of not getting angry or not not reacting when someone is coming at you with anger, but because you know the suffering that they're going, they're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same thing with ruptured discs. All of a sudden, you mm-hmm. have new appreciation for all the people who mm-hmm. have suffered with.
0: Ruptured discs, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, working with our own minds and just seeing how deep the afflictions go and how much suffering they cause, I think can really help us have compassion for others when we see what they're up against. Okay.
1: I think that also, too, my heart has opened a lot more when I've slowly gotten to understand the functioning of karma. You know, that, that once I understand that the suffering that I experience has causes, that when I see other people having difficulties or responding to the world in a harmful way, it really does lower my mind's judgment, my mind's blaming, my mind's bias. When I start to understand that there isn't anything that's going on inside of myself or on the side of others that doesn't have some sort of karmic cause that's that's precipitating that, and that there isn't any way to stop it once it gets going. All we can do is just work with what's happening. So I have found that once I've gotten over the why me kind of thinking, and and instead say, well... If, you know, this is what you've you've created the the causes for this when I see this the the activities of the people in the world right now that are just causing so much harm, to realize that there's a karma ripening for that person to be who they are. And then at the same time, they're creating karma for future. So how I relate to suffering is not just to accept what's coming, but then to be try to learn to be so much more. Steadfast and and open and compassionate, so that I'm not creating perpetuating the same kind of result in the future by the way in which I respond to it. And when I see people responding to the difficulties and to the harm with such outrage and such craziness, I know that that's continuing the wheel. So my heart, it seems like these days, the more outrageous it is, I just go to that go to that person and wonder what's happening. And what they're creating for the future, because my understanding of karma has opened up a lot more my view, that my heart just breaks for them. I mean, I just sometimes I just want to, I just want to cry for some of the folks that are doing these crazy things in the world and right what they're setting themselves up for. So it's cut, got me out of my judgment, judgmental mind a lot more than I
0: used to have. Yeah, yeah. belief in karma can be so helpful for overcoming anger and having compassion for others as you just know what's going to happen okay so then the last good quality of suffering that the verse mentions is that we want to pay more attention to avoiding the causes and increasing the causes um for happiness so we're basically becoming more interested in living ethically and benefiting others um, we take karma seriously, as and what Semke just said, and then we try to change our behavior to be in line with the Buddhist teachings. Um, so, by learning to voluntarily accept our suffering, we can reduce our anger gradually over time. Um, and reflecting on these this set of verses can help us really transform um, our attitude towards suffering, so that doesn't become a cause for further anger, further causing um, or further creating the causes for suffering, but instead becomes something quite virtuous as we channel it into our practice. Uh, So Lama Zopa, he gave a great description of how um, reducing our anger gradually over time happens. And I'd just like to read that piece. Okay, so he says, whether we are experiencing irritation with discomfort or anger at at a perceived harm, we need to train our mind in patience, developing our ability to remain patient more and more. And the more we train our mind, the easier it becomes. We will certainly see changes when we observe our mind over a long period of time. At the beginning, there is no way of averting anger once it starts to arise but it all becomes easier with practice. And after a while, we can start to see anger arising, like a beacon flashing or the landing lights of an airport coming on as the plane approaches, telling us this dangerous situation will happen. Even if in the early stages the anger has arisen before we have time to practice the remedy, we can still see the harm of allowing our life to be controlled by anger and determine what we can do to diminish and then destroy it. Practicing this way, the next time a situation happens that normally incurs our anger, the anger will be a little bit less. And over time, we will see that whereas before, maybe a few years ago, we we would have been angry for days. Now, although anger still arises, it disappears very quickly. And then it just occurs for a moment or two, and finally, it is not there after at all. So I thought this might be a nice way to <laughs> conclude uh, the session by showing that I think he's gone through that process. It is possible, little by little. Are there any last uh, remarks? Thank you for sharing. And we'll do the dedication verse.